You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where we continue our journey into the world of rules-based investing and share our experiences with you each week, hoping that you can find a few gold nuggets to implement in your own investment journey. As usual, let me start by saying good morning to you, Jerry. Good afternoon to you, Moritz. Well, good morning to both of you. Yes, good morning. Yeah. I was going to do my usual uh, wrap of the uh, markets this week, but frankly, I didn't find much to uh, talk about. Uh, I'll, I'll be interested to hear what uh, what you saw, Moritz, but I've been on the road most of the week. And uh, and uh, so, of course, we know that kind of the risk-on uh, environment has continued this week um, with safe havens being dumped uh, in exchange of uh, the ever-rising appetite for equities uh, at new all-time highs. Uh, I guess the dollar had a little bit of a uh, comeback this week, uh, which is uh, interesting. But um, I guess the most interesting thing I found from the world of finance this week was, you know, just this glimmer of insight that we are now getting into the the secret world, I should say, of of Jim Simon's Renaissance Technologies and uh, and Medallion Fund. Um, I thought that was a fascinating book that came out uh, this week. I know. Uh, you guys haven't necessarily read all of it, even though there were some great tweets from Jerry. I'm sure we're going to get into that later on. Um, and um, we can talk about this later. We can stay on on, on normal, our normal topic. But I thought it was very, very interesting to see some of the um, uh, things that uh, the author had uh, been able to find out about um, how uh, it all works and and how the people behind uh, Renaissance Technologies, um, you know, their story and and how in many ways, uh, maybe with the exception of their uh, incredibly perform- incredible performance, um, you know, have very similar traits to, uh, to the rest of us. Um, but let's see uh, how we go and, and how much time we have to talk about these things. Um, why don't we just do, as, as we normally do, Mortz, um, hear a little bit about how, how you're weak and in the trend space went? Yeah, uh, so how did it go? I remember a relatively volatile week for me in terms of daily returns. Um, ended the week roughly flat, maybe slightly down. But um, like you said, Niels, it's been a risk-on environment um, through and through. I mean, the move up in the equities is kind of like relentless since at least this past week, maybe even the week before. And so I'm long the equities, which was good, um, but I'm also still long the bonds, not as much as I used to be. I think I've mentioned that last week, but here the the move down in bonds and, you know, yields moving higher is as relentless as equities moves higher. So it's kind of like the double whammy for my portfolio. Um, I'm long gold. That didn't work. So I was just lucky that, you know, I had a couple of positions on in the currency space and in the energies. Um which, you know, counterbalance the losses from those two asset classes. So I think I'm slightly down. Um, but what, what I do remember, I had, you know, every once in a while, I looked at the portfolio during the week, and I had relatively large uh, percentage moves, which, you know, when I, when I look at things such as like crude oil, you know, the thing just, you know, goes down two bucks, and then 
you know, all of a sudden it pops back up two bucks and it's, it's like yo-yoing around. And I've seen the same in, in some other markets uh, as well. So, well, that, that's that. I'm, you know, we're sitting here following our systems. This is what we do. And then this, uh, this devil in my head, you know, who's, which is the discretionary trader who I'm trying to mute and, and shut down all the time, you know, always tells me, well, you know, those equities are too high. Um, they need to drop at some point. And, um, but no, it's, it doesn't seem to be the case. You know, there's things like Tesla moving higher and higher, you know, a stock which many of us probably would have said is, uh, is going to go out of business at some point. But no, not so fast. So um, try to not think about it too much. Uh, look at the price only. Mute my brain on all those fundamental uh, noises about the stocks and just, you know, follow on. It's funny you mentioned the thing about the, the discretionary trader inside you're trying to mute. that. That's actually one thing that is a little bit of a surprise to me when I uh, went through the uh, Jim Simons book that there is a, uh, certainly in their early days, I would say a lot of their gains were actually from discretionary trading. They couldn't quite get the rules to uh, do what they wanted and so on and so forth. Um, and I think still even to this day, there are, elements of that discretionary trader showing up not necessarily i think in their actual trading but just how they react to certain things uh, like q4 last year there's a bit of a story on that and how simon's uh, you know was tempted to to uh, to make some calls uh, on that for his at least for his own portfolio so interesting um i think i think that trader will always be lurking somewhere in the background um, but like as you said, I mean, uh, a lot of a lot of these markets uh, looks like they're in some kind of transition, and a lot of them are just stuck in in ranges. You mentioned the oil going up and down. I just saw the news this morning that now Ira I think Iran has found a, a massive uh, oil reserve, fifty five billion barrels, as far as I could tell from the news uh, headline. So we'll see. Probably this is, will continue for a while longer. Uh, going into next week as well, and uh, and uh, so like you, I mean, we probably had uh, well, we did have a down week, um, and nothing dramatic, but it was a bit of a down week. So gains in equities certainly offset by losses still in fixed income, even though that exposure has been reduced quite dramatically by now. Um, and uh, what else? Uh, the dollar was okay for us. Uh, that was actually fine. Gold, silver, yeah, we lost a bit of money on that. Just like you mentioned, um, and but we also had losses in coffee and net gas. Um, so uh, all in all, a bit of a, a down week. But you know, it's interesting now going over to you, Jerry, and, and obviously with the single stocks that you trade. So in the book again, it mentions, and and this number might even be bigger by now. I can't remember exactly the timeline of this. But where they talk about trading, you know, several thousand stocks, um, you know, in their portfolio at at uh, Rentec, and um, and also what really surprised me, which we can talk about a little bit later, was just the activity of which they were active in the markets. Um, and there was a great tweet from Wayne actually yesterday where he said something about you know nine five percent of the time we should be active, but ninety five percent of the time we just shouldn't do anything. Um, and of course, in our world, that's pretty much how it works. But when you then see uh, in in the book about Rentec, how I think it was back in two thousand and one, even at that time they were trading one hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand trades per day. Uh, 
I mean, that is not being sitting on the couch, that's for sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, different ways of doing things. Um, um, but it was interesting to see how active and, and how much cracking the individual stock market, uh, the importance of that for, for Renaissance Technologies, which, of course, Jerry, you've already cracked the individual stock market or stock trading trend following. So uh, <laughs> over to you. <laughs> I haven't cracked that quite yet, but I do think it's an easy call to diversify and trade some single names. But uh, yeah, I think it's a, been kind of it's a, we're in a critical place in the metals and uh, the bonds, the precious metals and the bonds. Is are these trends going to continue? So that's kind of a bummer that that didn't work out, um, or it's not doesn't look like it's working out. Uh, I got a message from someone this week on Twitter about commenting about still being short cattle, which I think I still am short. The cattle was quieter this week, maybe, but he's like, how can you still be short? It's been up eight weeks in a row. And I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I am kind of long-term eight weeks in a row. It sounds like uh, a trend reversal, I guess, but uh, I guess my systems can do that. But uh, yeah, my comment, I wanted to comment on the discretionary piece that I think it's kind of like in our world, what's, what happens is we fight off our, uh, the, our mentality of thinking about how much we'd like to do something discretionary, but we still have this unfortunate uh, outlet where we can uh, go and tinker and change the rules, which I think is about the same thing. So we'll maintain our uh, claim that we're not being discretionary, but... Uh, we can get sucked into this idea of let's uh, change the unit size a little bit. Maybe I'm trading the bonds too heavy. Ah, I can get out of a few or we'll change our exits a little bit. And uh, maybe that'll reduce uh, my exposure to a, a painful trade that I'm in. So I think that's something to still guard against, even though we're not actually doing something uh, discretionary. It, it's sort of the same type of discretion to be emotionally influenced and change the rule a tad. So I've done that, and it's not. Uh, it's it's the, basically the same thing. Yeah. No. Absolutely. But anyways, uh, I know it's been uh, maybe not so exciting in the markets this week, but it's been very exciting in the Twitter space. Um, and but before we jump to that, uh, we actually do have a voicemail uh, this week. Uh, Jim, who were at our live event uh, in New York um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, left us uh, left us a voicemail. So uh, let me just uh, play that right now. Hey guys, Jim from Fort Myers, Florida. Just a couple comments about the live event last week. I really can't put into words how much I took away from there. To be able to sit with the three of you in a small group setting and have our questions answered, straightforward, honest, forthright, with a positive slant to everything is just really awe-inspiring. You know, a lot of us are still developing our systems and the fact that you guys put it in a positive framework and we know from the successes that the three of you have had that we know it's possible and that opens up a whole world of possibilities for us. We had such a great group of guys, the three of you, so much information, so nice talking and getting to know the three of you and the lunches and the dinner. I mean, we just had such a great time. I came back really fired up, almost couldn't sleep for a couple days because I just want to look over charts and data. And 
I really, really had a great time. I can't put it into words. I, I don't think the three of you realize the impact that you have had on us, not only in the live event, but also in the podcast. And a testament to that is having somebody from all over the world. We had somebody from Australia, somebody from the UK, a bunch of us from the US. So keep up the good work with the podcasts. And I really can't wait for another live event. Just such a great time. It's really hard to express it, but from the bottom of my heart, I'd just like to say thank you very much. It was so nice to get to know you guys personally, and plus the information you provided, and I really, really thank you. Thanks, guys. Jim, thanks so much for your kind words and feedback from our live event. Uh, Jerry Martz and I very much enjoyed spending two days with all of you, uh, and so I'm glad to hear that it had a big impact on your trend-following journey. Um, you know, Keep it up. And uh, we'll, of course, keep in touch with all of you uh, from the live event in our little secret online group that we set up uh, to do just that. Um, and, of course, if you're listening to this and you want to leave us a, a voicemail in general, uh, a comment, um, then uh, feel free to do that. Uh, you, can do, you can go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash voicemail. Now back to um, back to social media land. Um, I know uh, this week has been um, interesting to say the least uh, when it comes to your tweets, Jerry. So um, do tell. Yeah, it's been a good week. It's been a fun week. Um, pretty much dominated by the Renaissance Simon's book. A lot of good quotes. I haven't finished or started the book really, but I have got. I think I feel like I've read a lot of the book because. There's been so many articles and some interesting podcast uh, interviews of the author. So it's, uh, but for me, it was a record-setting week, my most popular tweet ever by a factor of, oh gosh, four, probably four times as many people like this tweet than any tweet ever. Uh, And uh, it's pretty funny. And so it goes like this. When it notched up its first $1 million one-day profit in 1990, Simons handed out champagne. But $1 million one-day gains quickly became so frequent that the drinking got a bit out of hand. So there you have it. <laughs> be, be embarrassed, all 907 people who like that tweet, because I guess maybe drinking can get out of hand, and that's kind of funny. Yeah. Well, it's pretty impressive um, when you uh, when you go through the book and and certainly in the appendices at the end of it, uh, you see some of the not only the annual returns that they ended up producing uh, in the medallion fund. And I I should say that you know Renaissance Medallion Fund is only for themselves nowadays has been for probably the last twenty years or so. Uh, so it's not where investors can invest. Um, but when you look at the the gains, the net gains that this fund has taken out of the markets in the last uh, many, many years, I think it's more than $100 billion that they quote now as the amount of, of net profits they've taken out or, or gross profits, I should say, before fees. Um, someone has been on the other side of that. So um, they are a formidable force uh, in the market without a doubt. And it's, it's an impressive uh, track record. Yes, very impressive. What else? Yeah, what else uh, did people like in uh, Twitterland? Uh, Larry Height, you know, he pops up every now and then, and his book is out there, and uh, he's tweeting a lot about the book, and I haven't read that book either. I have both uh, on my Kindle, but uh, people really love Larry, and this one got a lot of notice. Uh, You can be right most of the time, but still lose everything if you put too much on one wrong bet. Most importantly, the market will never say it's sorry. Uh, 
Larry always has some wisdom and, and something kind of funny as well. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, just something, you know, we've all been talking about for many years to be diversified. Uh, and certainly it's, it's, you know, very appropriate and just fine to call it a bet and bet conservatively and, and diversify. And, uh, and so that's one of his rules and one of his advice for people that people found interesting and probably agree with. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like I like those Larry Hyde quotes uh, really a lot. They have like a genuine simplicity and truth to them, which only he can get across in that way, I have the feeling. Um, and uh, I remember another one that he said, um, I don't have it in front of me right now, but let me try. Maybe I remember it correctly. It was about taking small losses all the time. And he was saying like, well, you know, it feels like it's the wrong thing to do because you're actually taking a loss, right? And that's bad. So he says like, sometimes you have to do the wrong thing because it's the right thing to do. You know, and obviously this is this is super correct because we know this is how the game is played. You know, this is how we need to play each and every single bet. I like actually like the thinking in bets as well here. You know, we bet on the rocket ship. Let's get on the rocket ship. It fails. Feels like the wrong thing to do because we're taking a loss. But, you know, you have to do the wrong thing because it's the right thing to do. This is by Larry Hyde. Something like that. I think I, you know, probably 90% of that quote is correct, I hope. Yeah, no, it's it's so interesting to hear these people. I mean, um, I mean, Larry Hyde compared to Jim Simons, I think they're quite opposite in many ways. Yet both obviously have been very successful. You know, not to the same degree in terms of net, you know, net wealth today. But but it doesn't really matter. I mean, they have both been incredibly successful in in their field. Um, but they, um, they they kind of come at it slightly differently. And 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 Larry has this this uh, amazing way of putting things um, in, a, in a very straightforward, um, easy to understand uh, way, uh, without a doubt. And, you know, it would be nice if uh, we could hear more uh, of Jim Simons. You know, there's a couple of things on YouTube, uh, which I guess we've all seen. Maybe there's two or three. Um, and he's like this larger than life superstar in terms of trading. You know, it's quantitative trading, systematic, I hope, or well, I think it is, at least to the largest extent now. So you kind of like um, like to learn more, read more, see more about that firm, but it's so closely kept to themselves that, you know, it's it's difficult really to find anything. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to reading that book. I've mentioned I've pre-ordered it on Amazon, but it hasn't arrived yet, so... But the day, you know, the, the mailman rings the bell, I'll pick it up and open it up and then start reading. There are um, a lot of references in the book, I think, at the end of it, where you can see, um, you know, articles that the author used and so on and so forth, which is great. Mm. But I also think from listening to an interview, I think the same one that uh, maybe both of you, or at least Jerry, listened to uh, uh, with the author himself, I and even though he spent maybe 10 hours in total with Jim Simons, I don't think... Mr. Simons wanted to talk much about actually what goes on into Medallion. I think they spend most of the time talking about other things that is relevant for the story. But I think what goes on inside Medallion has come from current and former uh, employees, but not Simons himself, I would say. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's some funny videos out there. <clears throat> I know that there's one that I saw a few years ago where he's on stage being interviewed and he... Um, is sort of talking about how complex and mathematical the strategy is 
and the interviewer kind of in an innocent offhand way says, oh, okay, I understand. And he goes, no, you don't understand. You don't understand at all. There's like two people who can understand this, and you do not understand. So it's really humorous. I'm sure I tweeted it over the past few years. Uh, but another thing that I re- read uh, from the articles that popped out, I don't know if you guys saw this. I didn't tweet about it, but it was uh, a little bit of downplaying his, uh, he wasn't the smartest guy at, or isn't the smartest guy at Medallion. And his, uh, his uh, he is the one responsible, uh, I would say, for the success. But to the degree that uh, he knew how to put together smarter people and kick some out and get some others and defend, you know, there's where he goes in and threatens to sue one firm if he doesn't fire those two people, uh, ex Rintech yeah. people that he just hired. And so it was more like he was the coach and the manager and putting this together and making it work. Uh, and then I'll get into another great set of tweets where he, he does a, a discretionary override uh, to save the firm and basically just, you know, let's take positions off. We're losing too much money. And he gets shouted down by the more mathematical minded or the, the people who want to go down with the system. And uh, so I thought that was fascinating. But uh, it's kind of funny that uh, some are saying, or the author gives the impression that his main contribution wasn't he was the smartest math guy, but he was the uh, the guy who held them all together. I mean, obviously, you need to be incredibly smart in order to uh, find people who are even smarter than you and then put them together as a team. But it's true, and I think that for certainly in the beginning, he wasn't even the majority owner of, of the firm uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so definitely, and I forget the names of these uh, people who who were very uh, foundational and important in the early days of the uh, development of the firm, but it is just a fascinating story. I think everyone should read it. I mean, they certainly when they started looking at these things, um, you know, coming from their code breaker math background, um, they certainly found trend early on. I mean, without a doubt, they were doing breakouts and, and stuff like that because they found that that in the data, uh, that's what um, what was evident to, to work. But I think what surpri- one of the things that surprised me is that um, the way I would describe what they do, and I think it is described like this in the book uh, uh, as well, I mean, what they really became was an early and today a a massive machine learning uh, AI uh, shop, really. Um, th- you know, letting the machine and not necessarily fully understanding what goes on inside the model. And I think that's that's the fascination of it. I mean, they they admit they don't fully understand all of the things that they are finding in the data. So it's very different from the way we operate, where we fully understand what goes into the model and what the output would be. And that's not the case in in, in, in in their case, which also, I guess, makes it even harder maybe sometimes to stick with the model because you don't really know what goes on inside um, 100%. So just fascinating. I hope everyone will read this book. It's a great story also about just uh, how quant investing uh, evolved over three or four decades, uh, essentially, um, and the dominance that it has uh, today. So, yeah. I have a story. A a good friend of mine, I'm not going to mention his name because I'm not sure if he wants his name on the podcast, but a good friend of mine uh, used to have or used to run a part of Goldman Sachs' quant research division 
for many years and then retired. And um, he is a math wizard, like really wicked smart in math. And, and he got intrigued by the track record of Medallion. And, you know, obviously you cannot reproduce the thing using trend following or mean reversion or any of those type of strategies, which we know that just, you know, won't produce the same result. So he had a look at all the, you know, research papers in which Jim Simons has been involved and all of that, you know, voice recognition type of stuff. And he, you know, it has to do with what is called a money fold, which is a multidimensional topography of data. I'm not going to go into that because I'm lost already. I don't, I like, you know, impossible for me to understand, right? But, but for his intellectual capacity, he could do something with it. So he's playing with all that stuff. And he's a real good trader, discretionary trader, trading only DAX volatility. And as a sidekick, he's uh, building up those manifold type of trading systems, uh, which he runs on paper, I think, for the time being still. But they look absolutely fantastic. And, you know, he says, well, you cannot know why the system takes the position it takes. You know, it will trade certain stocks because they have some manifold relationship, which, you know, the, the, the market or the system has found and it, it just puts it on. But what I wanted to say is the funny thing is he said, well, it must have to do with the fact that Jim Simons doesn't wear socks. And this seems to be true. He doesn't wear socks. So <laughs> during the summer, this friend of mine is also he's a sockless He's like, oh, our winters are too harsh here, so he doesn't do it in the winter. But during the summer, no socks. Maybe that helps. Maybe that helps. No, but it, I mean, it is true. I mean, the book clearly states that when Mercer and, and Brown came into the firm from IBM, from the speech recognition um, part of IBM, um, that had a huge impact. And I think they were split initially between the futures trading part and the equity trading part, but they, they ended up... Um, joining each other uh, on the equity uh, side of things, cracking that finally, which had been really the key for them to grow to uh, to this size that they have uh, now. Um, and of course, Mercer and Brown were, um, you know, co-CEOs for, for a long period of time until recently when Mercer uh, were kind of forced by Simons to, um, to step down, which is another fascinating part. But, uh, you know, I think people should read the book and find out why that happened, because that in itself is interesting. Just another thing I've heard over the years that he has come out um, <clears throat> in the past few years and said that uh, specifically the trend following doesn't work. And so, um, and it's particularly troublesome because he has some trend following in his past. And so I haven't, I don't know if that's in the book or yeah, whatever. Yeah, but, I mean... Uh, they yeah, definitely. But uh, I, I think uh, I'll try to put a positive spin on it, you know. And uh, the only positive I could come up with was that, uh, you know, if you have a sharp of three, uh, you know, something with a sharp of 0.5, it doesn't work, you know. So in his world, uh, trend following doesn't work, given his three, four, five, whatever the sharp is. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's pretty high. So a 0.4, a 0.5 sharp, which is, I guess, sort of typical of trend following traditional trend following uh maybe maybe that's the best we can hope for that uh he it won't work for him but uh i would not be surprised world. yeah i wouldn't be surprised though that um i mean you know come on he knows about trend following he knows what we do so he may 
like to take the other side or some of our trades or figure out ways to get us going long or short or run us out of trades. And he's probably playing havoc with a few of our trades, minimally, I would say. You know, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I like your, your I like your point about that if you have other strategies with a much higher sharp, then you could certainly argue that trend following uh, doesn't work as well and, and you shouldn't include it. But what you find from their trading is, and I think this is probably the reason why they don't view trend following as, as the right thing for them, is that they, it at least the book portray them as not trading anything outright. Everything is relative to something else. So it's, you know, statistical machine learning, statistical arbitrage, uh, pairs trading, whatever you would call it, um, you know, at a very high level with a very high dose of leverage. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, it's definitely not what we do. And we know, I mean, we, I mean they have mastered it for sure. Let's, there's no doubt about that. Um, but of course, we know that there are other strategies that employ these type of relative value type strategies um, that look, for the most part, a lot safer than what we do. And I don't know if there are a lot of other people who can say that they're better. I mean, I was looking at, so from the book, there was this article on Bloomberg where they list they list some of the great managers of, of all times. Not uh, Actually, when you look at them, most of them don't have continuous track records that are that, I mean, 20 years, sure, but not 40 or 45 years, uh, you know, that some of the CTAs have. So, um, but they have good returns, but they're not, you know, they're not spectacular. What's spectacular is really Renaissance and maybe one other, you know, firm that gets to very high returns. But a lot of them are not vastly different from the the longer term trend following strategies, but they're certainly more stable, I'm sure, or, or have, have a higher sharp without a doubt. So... What else uh, took place in, in Twitter land, uh, Jerry? We well, I saw this article about uh, what investors can learn from best poker players, but I kind of ignored it. But then Moritz uh, asked me about this article, and then I read it, and I really liked it. And it uh, was something that has some good thoughts in it, and I tweeted this one. Uh, uh, hedonic framing is thinking about one's money, gains and losses in particular, in ways that maximize pleasure and minimize pain. And I think uh, the point there was you should not do that. And uh, so I, I added my two cents, which were successful trading correlates more to maximum pain. Um, and I think that's kind of what I assumed and learned in 1983. And have certainly, uh, if you, certainly if you trade trend following, small losses, uh, waiting for the big profits, having the big profits turn into small profits and less than 50% winners, there's a lot of... Uh, things uh it's not about maximizing pleasure i thought that was a pretty pretty interesting article and it goes on to say uh, traders and poker players must develop resilience and learn not to be guided by too much uh too much by results based behavior they must learn that it is possible to do everything right and have a bad outcome it is possible to every to do everything wrong and win big yeah, I mean, again, when you look at sort of the comparison between what we do and, and we know there's a lot of pain involved in that because it's not perfect, um, it works over time. But there is a huge difference, right? Because what we do, not only is it explainable, but it's doable. I mean, people can still create 
trend-following models and become very successful. I doubt really that anyone can ever compete with what Renaissance Technologies is doing uh, or the likes of Renaissance Technologies. I mean, no individual at least can do that, but I truly believe that individuals can have success in trend-following. Maybe not the same level of success, but success nevertheless. What I really like, I mean, this, you know, the, the thinking of the poker players or those people that play games of, what do I call it, games of chance. It's like, you know, probably also backgammon, poker, those type of games, right? Where it's a combination of skill, but also luck. I mean, this is just a, you know, fact when you play poker, you can be a skillful player, but if you're dealt a bad hand, then the odds are against you, right? So just to to, you know, frame it such that, you know, this is one round you're playing out of so many that will come in the future. So do not go bust because if you do that, you cannot play and don't take it personal. So don't overtrade, don't overbet, right? And don't take the outcome personal because it's just more important to do the right thing over and over and over again. And then the results should come out the other end. Yeah, so the luck is basically just a function of a small sample size. Exactly. And there's always noise around it, even if you're doing the right thing, right? It's a noisy process. It's a noisy outcome because you will be unlucky every once in a while or sometimes, you know, more frequently than you wish. And that shows up in bad outcomes or, you know, negative returns. But you must not take those personally. This is not about your system or yourself. This is just nature. This is the, you know, the game we play. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, on a slightly related note, I would just say uh, another takeaway from the book is, which is very evident, is, you know, these guys that didn't get to become who they are um, by not putting in the hard work. I mean, they put in a hell of a lot of work and a lot of their attention, uh, and I'm sure that's still the case today, they put a lot of attention on getting good data, getting lots of it, but making sure it was good, clean data. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, we may not have heard much about them in, in the past, um, but obviously it's a long, long-term process for them to have become so successful. It, it wasn't an overnight sure thing, and uh, rarely things are an overnight uh, success. So uh, good for them. My, my last uh, quote from this article I liked, uh, I wasn't sure exactly what the author meant, but uh, it says, poker players, I added, and traders sometimes miss an opportunity by folding too soon. The only way to avoid those kind of regrets is to play every hand until the end. And so I think that to some degree, maybe uh, for traders, it is a two, twofold meaning. One is uh, keep applying your system till the very end. Well, you know, to, you know, don't follow it down the tubes, but you've got to uh, not giving up on your system, but also don't give up on the trade. Uh, maybe that's what he meant for the poker players, is that uh, don't give up on the trade, and for traders, don't take small profits and let the trade go and uh, follow your system. Is, uh, like in this gold trade, it's very uncomfortable giving back all the profit from the max, but the trend is probably still intact, and your system probably says to stay long, at least maybe one of your longer-term ones. So I think uh, playing it out to the end, uh, in the, the idea that uh, you're going to follow the system that uh, and not getting out too quickly is definitely a, uh, a way we can make more money in the markets. Absolutely. 
But with that, let's uh, jump into our next usual uh, segment, which is uh, a few questions. We have a few questions this week as well. As always, if you want to um, send a question or two to us that we can dive into uh, on the podcast, just send it to info at toptradersonplot.com and we do our best to to get it on the show as soon as we can. Um, the first question is from Matt. And let me try and find the email. It's a little long, so let me sure that I find just the question here. Um, okay. In one of the last episodes, I think it was Moritz and Nils who mentioned that they don't really use moving averages as part of their trend-following system. I totally get that the price has all the information one might need to make buy and sell decision. My question is this. Does your system only just follow the higher highs and the higher lows and vice versa in price action while looking for breakouts and breakdowns in price through the systematic approach? Since moving averages are not used, are there any other indicators or complementary overlays being used alongside the price to aid or assist in getting more robust higher probability buy and sell signals? Or is the only other additional uh, addition to the price action, the volatility consideration using indicators such as ATR? Pretty much what he says. Um, I don't want to, you know, uh, speak too negatively about any moving averages. I'm sure that, you know, trend following, good trend following trading systems can be designed with them. Um, you know, think about the 50, 200 day crossover, things like this, you know, um, uh, I'm definitely not saying that those are bad or don't work. It's just, you know, for me, the way I went about it is pretty much twofold. I'd say, well, all the, you know, the system works based on price. This is trend following. So why should I be using a derivative of price, which is a moving average, as opposed to the price itself? So it just appeared to me that using the thing itself, the price, which includes all the information, to my belief, the most relevant and best information out there is incorporated in that price. So I just want to use that price directly and not a derivative of it. Um, and then when I look at the way the systems trade, the moving averages versus the breakouts, I like, you know, the breakouts, if you buy the high, you're really buying the high. This is this is the more painful trade even, right? Because you're really picking that high. And you may get a long position or a long signal by a moving average, which is not really the, the high price, right? So um, I also like that feature. It made it, made it even harder to trade, uh, to enter positions. And I also found that the, um, the breakouts, they keep me in trades for longer. So I have less of a whipsaw with, you know, uh, my breakout-based system as opposed to like a moving average system, which, you know, crosses in and out all the time or more frequently. Um, and this is about how much I thought or thought I, I you know, put into that. I, I started with the breakouts. I looked at some other things, but um, the breakouts work for me and uh, I didn't look back. 
Yeah, no, so I mean, so again, on our side, there's definitely no, uh, we're not uh, saying anything bad about moving averages. And, um, and you can certainly incorporate also moving averages as a filter, it doesn't have to be your primary signal generator. Um, I think a lot of it is about personal preference, what you like, uh, price breakouts, volatility breakouts, um, time series momentum is another indicator you can use um so uh, there are definitely different ways but you go on and I, I don't need to repeat what what Mort's just said but you also go on and ask whether we use different time frames daily weekly monthly as part of your system um and um of course jerry can also uh, jump in on this but from our point of view i mean we use daily data but clearly we use different time frames because we we want to have multiple uh, entry points and multiple you know exit points so so yeah we'll we'll use you know maybe 15 20 30 different um, quote unquote time frames or uh, you know as a parameter uh, or look back periods um, for just a single model uh, that would not be on unreasonable to do um, so you don't have too much riding on, and of course this is also a function of, of size, but you don't want to have too much riding on any one entry point as having to work out for you. You can build up your position slowly, you can get out slowly, um, that's really how, how um, we've, we've gone about it. Uh, yeah. Any thoughts on that, Jerry, before we move All on? of those I like and I agree, so I won't repeat, uh, but I would uh, rewind if you're listening and listen to all those again, because they're all good. I like them. And uh, But I would also say, kind of in a perverse way, I think uh, breakouts don't move up as quickly. The exit doesn't move up as quickly, in a, for instance, in a big uptrend. So if the market closes on its high today, that moving average is going to be impacted it's going to move up the exit and you know, you're locking in this profit. Oh, love to lock in profit. I mean, there's nothing better than locking in profit and the moving air and the breakout will disregard that totally. It has no impact at all. If a market closes strong and on its highs, it's looking at the lows. And, uh, so that's frustrating for us humans who want to lock in those profits, but I think it works better to, uh, not lock them in in that particular way and the breakouts are probably more frustrating more pain more suffering so that means they're better i love that that's a very good point yeah good stuff thanks again matt for sending in your um, question the next one is from james uh james has sent us questions before so we appreciate uh that they keep coming james um this one is probably more for 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 you guys um the article that, uh, so it's a question about sample size and risk management. The article that Jerry posted a couple of weeks back and the recent podcast have touched on a reasonable sample size. I was curious as to how a sample size of five to 6,000 trades is split up. For instance, if you have five look back periods, uh, that might take you from 20% invested to fully invested. Are you treating that as one trade, initial entry to final exit? Or is it five separate trades on a uh, on the same instrument? The second, which is related to the above, if we ought to diversify through multiple look-back windows, gradually building into a position and reducing it, does this mean each look-back window needs to be treated for risk management purposes independently, i.e. the stop losses and volatility management question mark? Or, in your experience, is it better to manage the risk on the entire accumulated position at any one time. All right, gentlemen. Some good 
questions from James there? Well, I think I understood the question, and that is uh, each system uh, has its own look back, and so you want to count the sample size for each system. So that is uh, the way that uh, I think you should do it. What about you, um, Moritz, and also maybe the point about risk management, uh, you know, whether you look at the full position or you look at them independently or et cetera? So risk management, look at the, what, what exactly does this mean? Look at, I mean, I definitely look at each position um, independently, right? So if, if I'm trading crude oil on one of my breakout windows, of which there are N, Right, yeah. not just one, but you know, different time frames. Then, if uh, if I'm buying crude oil on a high, then for that position, for that window, for that subsystem, if you will, I will have an initial stop and a trading stop. If subsequent to that, I'm buying more of crude oil because it hits another high on the longer term time frame, then for that position, again, I will have an initial stop loss and a trailing stop, but at different levels than the first time frame. So in that regard, I look at them independently. Right. But I, but I actually think that what you're asking, James, um, goes a little bit further than that, because I, th I, I think what, what you're saying, Maurice, is that, yes, you look at them individually, and they have individual mm -hmm. stops, but you also look at the total exposure to crude that you want to have at any one point in time in designing your system, right? So, so you can't, mm -hmm. you, you're not going to have, you know, twenty entries of one percent in crude. I mean, you, you, you have, you have to say, oh. okay, I, I yeah. well, yeah, no, I mean, it's sure. not clear, but, but I think that yeah. that has to be part of the answer is that yes, exactly. you look at it individually, but you also look at the overall exposure. You know, that is defined I, that, before true. anything else. Yeah, very true. I'm not putting on. 1% risk. I mean, absolutely not in every single one of those signals. Right. But to your point, if I had 20 time frames, 20 time windows that I traded on crude oil, I would treat them really equally, which means every single one of them gets a 20th of my risk budget exactly. for crude, whichever percent of equity that may be. Right. Yeah. And I'm not favoring. Um, the shorter term or longer term time frames in terms of you know um, capacity that they would get in the system they all get the same thing yeah and so so in that regard i know that there's a certain amount of risk a certain amount of maximum risk that i can have on in crude oil um, most of the time i'm not fully on with that risk right because not all of the systems um, are are developed i mean you know in some of the markets like in the past couple of months in the bonds yeah I, I definitely had that on and i guess you guys too right but in crude oil it's been quite a while since i was as since i've been at full capacity on those markets absolutely and then i would look at each one of those 20 individual systems independently they get a 120th of my uh, risk budget and I would just pretend that uh, I don't even understand. System one doesn't even know about the other 19. They're not related. I set them up to begin with to sort of add diversification on entries and in exits. But uh, they're sort of independent acting. And uh, it may look like if you're a client and you're seeing the positions, oh, Jerry keeps adding to this winning position. But all I'm really doing is following the all 20 different systems that have different look-back periods, different entries and exits. One of the things that kind of intrigued me about uh, the rule 
was uh, Larry uh, tweeted this, and I didn't talk about it in our podcast, but I kind of didn't understand where he was coming from on uh, the rule that is, uh, you know, the tweet about if you want to make money, you take small losses, but if you want to make a lot of money, you add to your winners. And so, uh, to some degree, that was beginning to sound a little um, less systematic than I am, which is, uh, oh, I had this trade, I think I'll add to the winners. It sounded a little less uh, systematic than, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to add to my winners, Larry, but only if uh, when my systems kind of kick in, my predetermined systems. And, you know, uh, if you're using breakouts or almost any sort of uh, strategy <clears throat> system, for instance, five through 10, they can all hit on the same day. And uh, they're, you know, the 100 day high is the same as 120, it's the same as 130, blah, blah, blah. So I didn't really understand uh, adding to winners. Is that the same thing as, does Larry think, I think of that as the same thing as Maritz and I trading multiple entries and exits? That kind of looks like we're adding to a winner. But it's each individual system being handled independently from the others and just those trades kicking in. Uh, what do you think about that? I, I, I like that. And it's also like sometimes I hear like, oh, you're parameting into your positions. And, you know, this may be true as a you know, matter of fact, when you look at the way the trades develop over time uh, in the bonds, you start and then you get longer and longer and longer because more of those systems kick in. But it's not that I have a pyramiding algorithm defined um, that, you know, forces the system to buy into winning trades. It's, it's like you say, Jerry, I look at those 20 subsystems or the 20 timeframes as individual managers. They're kind of like individual money managers inside of my system. And I have quite a few of them. Um, and and they, they don't know of each other, really. The, you know, the, the result may be that I'm increasing my position and I'm Paramiding in, I'm adding to my winners, but this is not because of a paramiding algorithm or adding to winners algorithm. It's just, you know, at the, <laughs> this is how the thing works. And Neil said something uh, that was critically important a few minutes ago. That is the plan at the beginning. It was the plan from the beginning. So I've tried to figure out this pyramiding and how it could be wrong or how it could be kind of used pejoratively. And I think it's because it insinuates that now that I have this new open profit, I can afford to do another trade. And we all know that that open profit is fleeting. It goes away tomorrow. You can't afford to do it. But if as part of your plan to risk 100 basis points divided by 20 for each of the different systems, it's not dependent upon systems one through 10 showing a this temporary profit, may or may not be a temporary profit. So now I'll do systems 11 through 20. No, no, no. I could afford it from day one with my current equity. Uh, and so I think that's critically important that all of these decisions need to be made from the get-go, from the very beginning of how you're putting your system together and not on the fly, oh, now I'll add to this winning position, which I hadn't planned on doing. It wasn't part of my strategy. That's what I don't really think is a good idea. I'm not trying to, I don't even know what Larry meant by that, but I think uh, having a systematic approach that adds to winners because it's following, it's looking at different uh, look back periods and timeframes and other systematic approaches. I don't think, I think that's great, but I don't think that I can agree 
that it is uh, the secret to making lots of money. One or two lookbacks, you're probably going to make about the same amount of money. The multiple systematic approach is more so to spread out the, the pain. No, I'm glad you expanded on that, Jerry. That's, that's absolutely perfect. Um, thanks, James. I hope you got uh, lots of uh, things to think about from those answers. Next question is from uh, Brian. Uh, Brian, thanks for writing in to us. Um, I have a few questions pertinent to episode 59. So uh, if anyone uh, have missed episode 59, you should go and check that out. Uh, it goes, the David Drew's um, comment that some of the most robust systems are the most volatile ones because they're not optimized for any particular environment. This comment caused me to pause because it has always been my understanding that the less volatile a system, the more reliable or robust. I was hoping you could expand upon David's comment. And then the second one, the comment that lowering your volatility will lower your returns unless you increase your risk-adjusted returns. So another statement we've made. Once again, this was a cause for pause since, it's, since it has always been my understanding that the lower one's that the lower one's volatility, the better one's compound returns. I'm not so sure I quite understand that one. Anyways, maybe you did. So, let's dive into um, maybe the first point about uh, volatility um, and robustness. One of our favorite topics, we talk about this uh, on a reasonably regular basis. Um, Moritz, do you want to jump into this? or? Yeah, I'll do it. But let me start with the, uh, with the second part of the question yeah. before I forget it. it. was The lower the volatility, the higher the return or the higher the compounded the, return. Yeah, it says the lowering, those lines, right? Yeah, the lowering your volatility will lower your returns unless you increase the risk. And then it goes on. Uh, my understanding that the lower one's volatility, the better one's compound returns. So... So that one, I, um, with all due respect, I, I, I do not understand because volatility is not what makes you money. Return is what makes you money and what shows up in your account, right? So you may think about a system that has 20% vol and 0% return. You can have a system that has 10% vol and 0% return, still 0% return, or 5% vol and 0% return, still 0% return, right? So that just are two completely different things you know um less volatility is more convenient to more people because it's like the smoother journey uh but it doesn't mean that if you have a smooth journey and low volatility that your return is going to be high it's just two different things and then the robustness part um well i and, and we've said this before many times, you can, you can design, you can use Excel or Python or any tool you want and feed it with data and spend a week or a weekend massaging that data, finding a system or using some search algorithm to find a system that produces a fantastically smooth equity curve that starts at the lower bottom left and ends at the upper corner on the right and and this will be characterized by low volatility and high return right because this is how you've just 
curve fitted. This is how you've just data mined that thing. And it's probably going to have a lot of parameters. And it appears to be robust because the return series looks so nice. But in reality, what you've created is something that is extremely fragile and very, very opposite of robust because what you've just created is not going to, it's very unlikely to repeat itself in any shape or form in the future. So there is going to be with a high degree of certainty system failure as soon as you start trading this. So it is important that you, you know, focus on simplicity and not adding too many parameters and rules in order to have the statistical significance uh, of that system protected and in order to create a large sample size upon which you can analyze the returns and come to conclusions. And what you will see then at the end of that is that your returns are going to be much more volatile because you don't have that many parameters and you need to allow for the system kind of like to breathe up and down in order to get to the return. And if, if this isn't clear, I mean, one of the, and it's still probably my favorite example, is um, imagine selling on a weekly or monthly basis um, the 95% or 90% out of the money put on the S&P, right? Ever since the global financial crisis, this system, with the exception of last year in February and maybe the, third, uh, the fourth quarter of last year, but there have been a few dips, right? But for the past 10 years, this strategy has produced enormous results, really nice returns, right? And in a very smooth way, um, because we've just had a bull run in equities for like all of that decade. And the corrections haven't been that painful. There hasn't been a global financial crisis or a Black Monday in the past, you know, 10 years. It just didn't exist. So you create that, you trade that. It, it, it is smooth, but it is extremely risky. And it may show you a kind of like carrot today that there is a nice return to be had, kind of like blinds you, um, because you're taking on so much risk. And if you trade it, I'm pretty sure that strategy long enough and you're picking up those dimes in front of a bulldozer, then you have a very high chance of your final return being minus 100%. Not zero, minus 100, which means you go out of business. So just when you think about these things in the markets, it, I believe it's important to you know take it for what it is and not over engineer those things um to only have a a a nice you know back test or to put the risk into some dark corner of the you know the left tail of the distribution where you don't see it until it comes to bite you so lots of things to take away from that let me just add a few things uh from my side love to hear your comments as well jerry um in terms of the first comment about the more robust uh, systems tend to be more volatile um i think from my point of view uh, and again we talked about this uh, so this is just saying what what um uh, what Moritz just did, but in a, in a slightly different way. And that is, to me at least, a lot of these very smooth return streams, to me, they seem to be warehousing the risk. And it may not be expressed until, you know, one day, and then suddenly everything goes wrong, and you find out that the risk was there. It just had, hadn't been expressed. 
while exactly. the more volatile strategies like trend following, we recognize and we realize the risk every single day because we mark to market our positions. Um, and we don't believe that you can take inherently volatile markets, put them through some kind of formula, and suddenly you're only left with the good stuff, the return, with no risk. So, so I think think about you know think about it um, you know uh, and in in that um, context, and and then maybe the the comments we've made previously make more sense to you, uh, Brian. In terms of the lowering returns um, and and so on and so forth. I think maybe there's a missing point uh, in 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 the question or the way you think about it, um, and uh, and maybe you know we didn't express it well enough uh, previously. But what I mean by if you lower your volatility, you lower return. Essentially, you're lowering your volatility because you're taking less risk, right? So I'm not talking about necessarily that you find some magical formula whereby you can, in fact, lower your volatility but remain, you know, as profitable as you were before. I think what we've talked about in the past is that we've seen our industry because we know institutional investors, they like low volatile strategies. So I think part of the reason why I say trend following as a whole, the industry of trend following have seen their returns drop. There are a number of reasons for it, but I think one of them is by design, like David Harding from Winton, who have openly come out and say, I have lowered my volatility. But he's also lowered his return at the same time. Um, so so I think that's what, what maybe that's where this statement comes from, that by lowering returns, you're also lowering your, your um, oh, sorry, by lowering your volatility, you're lowering your returns, unless, and that's the point, unless you're able to increase your risk-adjusted returns. You find that magic... Uh, addition to your system that actually allows you to improve your risk-adjusted returns, meaning you still deliver the same returns, but you just do it in a with less volatility and, and lower drawdowns. And the worst-case scenario is <clears throat> to have a system that has too many variables and not robust, and not a good sample size, and then leverage it up. Whoa, big trouble. Uh, so I think... Uh, I thought that, you know, ironically, um, I looked up the Drew's quote. I have it, and it's just what you've been saying. And uh, it's kind of funny that uh, unless you're Jim Simons, it might be fair to say, um, you know, you need to not only embrace the volatility, but you're going to be in big trouble if your winning percentage is more than 50% um, and uh, you don't have these big drawdowns. So you want to have... Uh, a lot of volatility, a lot of drawdowns, all your profits coming from uh, just a very few trades and a, and a low winning percentage. Now you know you're in safety, unless you're Simons, which probably it has the opposite of all of those. But uh, I think it's important to understand as well that this approach of uh, not allowing volatility and having rules that eliminate uh, too much of the volatility, is uh, it's a backtest problem because more than likely in the future, you're not going to make money. And so you won't even have the, uh, the, you probably will have more volatility and less profits than the back test looks like. That's the whole problem. But in the short run, you know, you can definitely get lucky uh, with an overfitted system and have uh, profits and not have these drawdowns. And I think uh, prior to getting that evidence, um, 
you know, I think it would be reasonable to, to see that, uh, you know, if you have a system that um, has a couple of rules and it's not overfitted and it's uh, definitely robust, you still have the opportunity to uh, have this um, <clears throat> oppressive money management overlay that comes in and starts doing all kinds of trades, cutting back, reducing risk, uh, volatility targeting, whatever, that's not really part of the back test. And so I think that's likely as well that uh, you can be very happy with your system because it is robust. It doesn't have a lot of variables, but in the implementation, if it's the system trades are overwhelmed by more of a money management or risk management or all of these terms that people want to use to make their uh, discretion somewhat immunized, you're going to run into the same problem. It's the exact same thing. You just can't slap money management on it or risk control on it and say, oh, I trade a robust system when the majority or a huge part of the trades are sort of non-system trades. The other thing I just want to add to this conversation, and that is, um, oh, we talk about Renaissance being perfect, but they weren't perfect all the time. Um, they had their 30-40% drawdowns. We just don't know about them because it's not really part of the official track record, or maybe it is, and we just don't see them. But but they talk about these in the book and how some of the um, you know some of the positions were stopped out because they hit their 40% drawdown level. Um, I don't remember the year this this occurred, but it's it's described there. So it's also been a a a, a journey of trial and terror uh, in their case. And by the way this is super one. important you know just because renaissance and and the likes of renaissance have been super super successful in the last 10 15 20 years etc etc if what they're doing is based a lot on machine learning if the environment changes dramatically and suddenly that machine learning can blow up there's nothing to say that they will always deliver these type of returns just because they've done it in the past so you know, and and they, as I said, they 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 trade with um, you know healthy leverage. So and and there are a lot of people, I'm sure, not a lot, but there are a few of the really really big mega funds that are doing probably something very similar. So can you imagine if 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 something happens that their systems did not are not able to handle, and it happens at the same time for all of these mega funds with all the, you know. Things can change, and and so what we I think what we're trying to say is that by not designing the perfect system that delivers positive monthly returns all the time, we feel at least that our approach is better equipped to deal with whatever comes in the future, because we're not relying on the the, the future to be equal to the past. Yeah, every single bet that we place may be like this trial and error that you've just mentioned, right? We try and then it becomes an in quote error because it hits our stop loss, but it prevents us from being trial and terror. I just, that one, you have to make sure you get that out on Twitter. That's a really good one. <laughs> uh, we're normally not in the trial and terror space. Good stuff. Thanks, Brian, for your um, uh questions and uh, what we love about all of these questions is that usually sparks a little bit of a, a discussion on our side so so we do appreciate you sending them in final question today is from uh, getano um, who writes uh, this is a question of thing most likely about how to implement uh, some of these things um, getano goes uh, do you use etf such as spy gld TLT in place of or in addition to futures, normally when a futures contract notionally value is bigger 
than my account liquidity, I will not trade it. Also, it's easier to scale a trade with ETFs according to ATR. Um, yet I'm left with a long only approach and I pay extra commissions. Um, I think just for me to jump in on this one, first of all, um, I mean, I don't think any of us uh, trade ETFs, but it doesn't mean you can't use an ETF. Um, what, 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 and, and, and I think there are more and more now, or, um, uh, you know, there are definitely a movement in, in some markets. Um, it could even be the, the, uh, I think it was, uh, Charles Schwab who came out this week uh, at their conference to say that they're now going to allow for fractional, uh, share trading, uh, in addition to making it commission free. So, so keep that in mind. So things are getting basically free. And you can trade smaller fractions of a, of a stock because some of the stocks have become so expensive. Uh, with futures, you can't trade fractional futures, so that, that is more difficult. But, you know, the, the important thing is to make sure you base your signals on the instruments you trade. Um, I think so. We again, we go. We we always say this. Uh, you know, you you trade what you test, and you test what you trade. I think that's important. Uh, taking signals from a futures market and implementing it in 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 other um, uh, ways uh, other than the instrument itself might be a bit more tricky and maybe not so surprise uh, precise. But but you know, you have to do what you have to do, Catano. And I think that's that's the key thing. And and you seem to be uh, you know taking just that approach anything you want to add um more it's i think it's it's like you say niels it's perfectly doable there are no fractional futures and for some you know people who don't have a very large account um trading the etfs is is perfectly fine um the way that space has developed over the past couple of years especially with equity index etfs and also the bond etfs there's like pretty much everything all available under the sun these days for very attractive prices, uh, certainly in the US, right? So trading the SPY uh, ETF or any of those other S&P um, ETFs, yes, why not? I guess the limitations are still a bit more on the commodities. Like if you wanted to find an ETF that really is good at tracking coffee or cocoa or you know some of some of the other like smaller commodity markets maybe difficult to find that one um but sure i mean for for equities and bonds um i uh i say that's a go good stuff good stuff those were the questions uh for this week uh as i said if you want to uh have us comment on some of your um curiosity then uh, just send it to info at toptradersonplot.com um, let me quickly run through uh, this week's uh, performance where we stand. Uh, the Beta 50 index is up 20 basis points for November, up 6.33 for the uh, year. Uh, Sokjian CTA index flat completely uh, as of Thursday, um, up 6.01 for the year. Sokjian trend index down a fraction, 35 basis points for the month of November, up 8.54 for the year. Uh, Sokjian short-term traders index up half a percent. Uh, which makes it up 2.5% for the year. And we have the Bridge Alternative Index, which is down a percent so far in November, but still up 7.39% for the year. Before I ask you if you have anything else you want to add to this, um, we've been talking a lot about Jim Simons this week, um, and uh, for good reason. But I don't think we should necessarily forget 
that another prominent hedge fund manager, namely Ray Dalio, published uh, another thought-provoking piece this week. Um, and uh, I picked up one of the quotes, actually from George, uh, his weekly email. He had also found this quote in, in the post. And, 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 and Ray Dalio goes, because investors have so much money to invest and because of past success stories of stocks of revolutionary technology companies doing so well, more companies than any time since the dot-com bubble don't have to make profits or even have clear paths to make profits to sell their stock because they can, in they can instead sell their dreams to those investors who are flush with money and borrowing power. So I thought that was a nice little reminder that there might be some exuberance going on in the new all-time highs we see at the moment. But... As Mort said earlier, we just don't know when that exuberance will come to an end. That's right. Anything else, guys, that we should uh, bring up before we bring this conversation to uh, to a close? Well, probably for the first time, I didn't get through all my tweets. So remind me, I have some really good ones uh, still going with uh, Simons and uh, and. Then, do you want to uh, do one now? Do oh you no, do we can wait till next week. No? Just don't, okay. just don't okay. let me forget because uh, okay. I want to. And Wayne has a uh, a great one as well. So okay, we got some material. That, Perfect. Uh, well, yeah. it's nice to be uh, to be long on material. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Looking forward to the one from Wayne. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. Okay. Well, I mean, on that note, we're going to wrap up this uh, week's conversation. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and of course, if you felt you got some value from today's conversations, uh, please share it with your own tribe or followers. Um, you know, we are grateful for a rating or review on iTunes. Uh, anything that can help other investors discover our little podcast, we would appreciate that. From Jerry, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.